For those of you who may not know, my name is Ricky Ragone. I am the music and arts and youth pastor here at the church, and on occasion, the guy who preaches. Um, so as you know from our scripture reading, this morning we will be continuing in our series, The Gospel According to Luke, Mission to the World, and we will be in Luke chapter 6. So if you weren't there earlier, if you could turn there or swipe there, um, whatever you have is good as long as you are in Luke chapter 6 and uh, it's in English, unless you don't read English and whatever. We do have, as Pastor Chris mentioned, Bibles in the back, between the double doors if you need one. So the last time I preached, we were in Luke chapter 4, and you may or may not remember that because the only thing you might remember is the fact that a clip from Avengers Endgame played out of place for a very long time with no sound, and it was fun for everyone. So if you don't remember Luke chapter 4, I won't hold it against you. I barely remember myself because I was up here losing my mind. Um, but believe it or not, we did study the Bible that morning, and that's when we saw Jesus in a synagogue in the region of Galilee on the Sabbath day, actually, which is where our text lives today. And in that passage, he stands up to teach, and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, and Jesus says, as he quotes it, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what happened is after reading that passage, he sits down to teach, and the eyes are glued on him, and he says this thing that got people riled up. He said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the anointed one that the prophets pointed to. And eventually, people get mad. They say, is this, this is not Joseph's son? And they try to kill him. They run him out of town, trying to throw him over a cliff. But what we see after that, Jesus is establishing what he's here to do. To set the captives free, to liberate the oppressed. And what we see in, in the verses after that, what we've been looking at over the past few weeks, is Jesus living that out. He is proclaiming good news to the poor. He's uh, liberating to the captives and the oppressed. He's recovering sight to the blind. He's healing we see this as he heals the man with the unclean demon, healed Peter's mother-in-law and others. He cleansed the leper. He heals the paralytic who's lowered down through a roof. We see it as he's calling people to himself, Simon Peter, James, John, Levi. Jesus made a claim in his, his actions, in his ministry, backs it up. He's ushering in a new covenant, one more complete than the old. He's the one it points to. We saw that especially last week. As Jesus answered the question as to why John's disciples fasted, and as did the Pharisees, but his are eating and drinking. Jesus explained things are a, a little different with him here. He's bringing something new, something better, something more complete than the old ways. More complete and fulfilled than the rituals and the sacrifices of old. We heard this parable about new 
new garments and, and old and new wineskins. And he's saying you can't live in the past in the old ways and try and, and make the new just fit. It won't hold up. The garment will rip. The wineskins will burst. Christ, the King, is ushering in His kingdom. And that means a new way of living marked by obedience, motivated by His perfect and finished work alone. The burdens of the Pharisees would not be what weighed God's people down any longer. For Jesus has come, and His burden is easy, His yoke is light, because He is the one who does the work. And we're called to believe in Him, put our faith and trust in Him, live our lives in obedience because of the love He shows in giving His life for us. And that's what we will see this morning as Jesus is practically demonstrating the new and better way versus the old as he has to deal with Pharisees on the matter of the Sabbath. Because this morning his, his disciples, they're called out for unlawful actions on the Sabbath day. And in the end, what I hope that we see this morning is that the Sabbath should not be rooted in, in legalistic obedience but in love and in the gospel, something Jesus demonstrates and something the Pharisees lack entirely. So as we explore the Sabbath this morning, we'll look at it uh, through these, these four points. The creation of the Sabbath, where does it start? Where is it prescribed? The corruption of the Sabbath, how did this, the Sabbath transform into what it was in Jesus' day that prompted this interaction? The core of the Sabbath. What, is, what does Jesus teach us about the, the true heart of the Sabbath day? And then the completion of the Sabbath. How does it find its completion in the gospel and in the finished work of Christ? And what does that mean for us today? And I will say this. Even though we're talking about the Sabbath, we're really dealing with this text of Luke chapter 6. So today is not going to be an exhaustive study of what it means to live out the fourth commandment of the tenth commandment, keep holy the Sabbath day. We'll mention it, but if you want a more exhaustive study on that, I'll point you to our Ten Commandments series that we did a few years back, where we look at the commandment to keep the Sabbath and what that looks like from a gospel perspective, as Pastor Luke covered that in greater detail than I'll be able to this morning. Because our text is what we have to deal with more than that explicit command. So I'll just say that. If you're like, oh, you didn't mention things I thought you would. They're probably mentioned in our Ten Commandments series where we hone in on that. So I would point you to that on our website, kingschapel.net slash sermons. <laughs> the creation of the Sabbath. So in our Wednesday night youth groups, we are uh, both King's Kids, our K-5 Refuge, our 6th to 12th grade. We're walking through a curriculum called the New City Catechism. Um, catechism's aid in giving a concrete foundation for what and why we believe through a question and answer type format. Something we've seen for a long time, the Westminster Catechism, Heidelberg Catechism, um, all kinds of catechisms out there. But one of the area that the catechism hangs out in for a long time is the Ten Commandments. Um, because they are vitally important. They give us a glimpse of what life as one of God's people, God's redeemed, should look like. Worship one true God. Don't worship idols. Don't take the name of God in vain. If we are a people, and there's obviously more than that, but if we are a God's people who honor what God created, um, then we also should live in a way that honors his fellow creation. So don't murder, don't steal from people, don't covet, all these things. 
And within that commandment, we have God's command to keep holy the Sabbath day. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to, your Lord, to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Sabbath day was, was something so important to God that he includes it in these ten core laws and commands that he wanted Moses to give to his people. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. What does holy mean? It means set apart, different, distinct. Keep it sacred. It's an important day. Six days you, do, you devote to work. But the Sabbath day is a day of rest set aside, not for work, but for worship. For, for the Lord. You won't work. You won't require anyone in your house to work, from your family to your servants. Instead, you'll rest and you'll worship. But the Sabbath doesn't only begin in Exodus chapter 20, right? God points Moses back to the very beginning. He says, in six days God created everyone and everything, but on the seventh day God rested. Therefore God blessed the Sabbath and made that day holy. Then, in creation... Before the fall. It predates the law. It predates the fall of mankind. It's something that God had designed and blessed from the start. Sinclair Ferguson says this. He says, In creation, man was made in God's image, intended naturally as God's child to reflect his father. Since his father worked creatively for six days and rested on the seventh, Adam, like a son, was to copy him. Together on the seventh day, they were to walk in the garden. That day was a time to listen to all the Father had to show and tell about the wonders of his creating work. End quote. Work and rest was always this pattern designed for mankind. That never changed. But as a result of sin, the work became tougher. The relationship became God and man became fractured and distant. And I would say, as a result of that, the Sabbath became even more important. With work becoming harder, strangely, in our sin, the hard work also becomes an idol for many to be pursued and to worship. Look around us today. We, we, we value ourselves based on how busy we can keep ourselves, how much we accomplish, how hard we work. The idea of rest is foreign. Rest is a luxury that we possibly might get, but we, we probably can't because we're just too busy. I would say it's not even just an American thing because it's clearly a problem of sin that goes all the way back to Exodus, when, to the fall of man, really, Genesis, when God has to say, you need to keep the Sabbath. I'm commanding you, don't work. He gives it as a command. Don't forget it. Keep it holy. It was a distinctive for his people. God's people should look different than those in the world around them. Just as God's people are to be holy and set apart, so should the Sabbath. We rest on that day. God's people rest. The world may see something different that would point them back 
to God. That was its, its purpose. That's the purpose of the Sabbath and taking a day to rest even today, setting aside time to worship, prioritizing that time. And what happened to the Sabbath rest and what happens in almost all of God's law is it gets corrupted by human hands. We're very, very good at taking something that God designed and completely screwing it up. We excel at it. We're the best. And what the religious leaders did back in the day in Judaism is they took a day designed that was for rest and rejuvenation and this energizing of God's people, this day of worship to Him. They took it and instead of making it restful, they made it a burden on the people. They added to it. They categorized it and made it so that you really had to jump through hoops. Or, or not jump through hoops, that would be work. Don't jump through hoops, but jump through hoops in order to keep the Sabbath. And you had to do these certain things in, in order for it to be in obedience. And that's what is happening this morning in our passage. The corruption of the Sabbath. Right? Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through the grain fields. And the disciples, they pluck some grain with their hands. And they rub it to get it out, and, and they eat it. And some of the Pharisees say, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Take a pause from the Sabbath for a second. Because that's what this text is about. But it also could be about unhealthy obsession. Like these Pharisees are stalking Jesus and his disciples and following them on their Saturday walks through grain fields? I'm unhealthy. Unhealthy. Like, get something better to do, especially on the Sabbath. You are Pharisees. Should you not be worshiping? They're telling them, like, private investigators, watching their every move. It always feels like somebody's watching me. They had nothing better to do. They're just moseying through the grain fields. Disciples just, oh, here's some grain. I'm going to take some. I'm going to eat it. You know how obsessive you have to be to catch that? I almost pop, pop, uh, picture them just popping out of the, uh, the bushes like an old evil villain from like a cartoon. Maybe like Dick Dastardly and Muttley from Wacky Races. Right? A good youth pastor makes a reference to the 60s. But they come up twirling their mustache. Aha! We caught you with your grade! <laughs> right? And they thought they had the ultimate gotcha question, like, ha, huh, what are you, why are you doing what is lawful, not lawful on the Sabbath? Right? They thought they had him. But before we get to Jesus' response, I think it's important to understand why did they think that plucking that little piece of grain or pieces, maybe a little multiple pieces, but whatever they could have in their hands, why was that unlawful to them? It seems crazy. And the issue at hand isn't even technically the plucking of grain as though they caught them stealing on the Sabbath. Because in Deut Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, I won't read it, but it actually explicitly mentions plucking grain with your hands and eating it from your neighbor's grain field as something you were allowed to do. The only thing you couldn't do is bring a sickle to your neighbor's grain field and harvest all their grain understandable. You can't just go and steal all your neighbor's stuff. 
obvious violation of the Ten Commandments. It's like walking into an all-you-can-eat restaurant with Ziploc bags in your pockets and kind of like, they said all-you-can-eat. They didn't say all-you-can-eat here. It's a reference to the movie Blank Check. If you haven't seen it, you're okay. Don't bother. But this plucking of the grain, it was a provision that God's law made actually for the sake of the poor. Like, you can take some grain. You need to eat. You need to survive. Where God's people look out for God's people. So Jesus and his disciples, they're in the clear on the whole grain-plucking action. The issue the Pharisees had was they did that on the Sabbath day. They really guarded the Sabbath. And we, we saw that, that it's something important to God, right? It's in the Ten Commandments. It should be holy. It should be set apart. But what the Pharisees do is they take what God says and they make it even harder to follow. And in the name of holiness, in the, in the name of righteousness, they add all these different conditions to it. God simply wanted his people to take a break from work and labor, rest and worship him. That's, that's what God wanted for his people. Find their rejuvenation in him. Focus on him. Don't make an idol out of work. But the Pharisees felt to really hone in on this work aspect, and they asked the question, what is work? Let's define work as though we need to define work. Like, we all understand what work is, and we know when we're not working. Because <laughs> it feels really good. But they say, let's define work. So eventually work got broken down into 39 different categories, and all these different things you couldn't do on the Sabbath. I won't go through them. A lot of them go back to the work that was used in the, the making uh, or work done within the tabernacle. But they come up with these 39 different categories of work, and within the heading of bread making, which is a form of work, things that were forbidden were reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food. You couldn't do any of those on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees look at the disciples walking through the field, take a little grain in their hand, like a kid plucking raspberries off a bush, and they determine that four infractions occurred in that moment. Reaping, that occurred when they picked the heads of the grain off. Threshing and winnowing occurred when they rubbed the grain in their hands. Can you believe that? And then when they ate it, ah, you just prepared food on the Sabbath. That's what they, that was work to them. A snack on a walk, work. You're violating the Sabbath. You don't have to have any kind of degree in theology to see that that seems to miss the point and the purpose of the Sabbath. They break four different laws just by eating the grain? But then the question is, well, whose law did they really break? They broke the Pharisees' law. They didn't break God's law. God didn't categorize every little aspect of what work would be into 39 things. The Pharisees did. God's law required rest, time with family, time with loved ones, time in worship of him. God's law was given for the purpose of that rest. It should have been a joy. But the Pharisees managed to change it and make it a burden. It ended up being more work to make sure you didn't work than it would be to just go to work. <laughs> Mankind, already incapable of keeping the law God gave, they decide... We're going to make it even more unattainable. We're going to make it even tougher. 
And in their self-righteousness, in their sin that was blinding them, they're trying to defend the Sabbath all while completely missing the Sabbath. We see this in the, the second point of our passage. We're going to skip around a little bit, but if you go down to verse six, verses 6 and 7, on the, the next Sabbath day, Jesus says, or it's that Luke says, on another Sabbath, he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there with a withered hand. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him, of course, to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. The Pharisees, consumed with hatred toward Jesus, go to the synagogue on the Sabbath, not to worship, not to grow in their faith, but to continue spying on Jesus. They're there not to listen to what he has to say, or to listen to his teaching from the scriptures. They watched him. They waited. They wanted him to slip up. To see, oh, would he heal today? Oh, if he does, we got him. They wanted Jesus gone. And a Sabbath violation was something that could be punishable by death. Exodus 35. So if they could catch him doing work, they would finally have him. So their eyes are glued on Jesus, but they're missing everything about him. They're missing everything about his law. That's a trend we've seen with the Pharisees, isn't it? They're so wrapped up in their, in their legalism, making it all about the rules and their self-righteousness, trying to keep the law in order to maintain their value and their worth, they actually miss the heart of God and the laws that are given. God didn't give the Sabbath so that people eating a couple pieces of grain would be reprimanded. God didn't give the Sabbath so that someone who might get caught healing and be punished for it. God didn't hire the Pharisees to be his police officers for the Sabbath. They appointed themselves to that position. And the heart of God is clearly seen in Hosea 6.6. 6, for I desire love, I desire steadfast love, or mercy, and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. Jesus actually quotes this in, in the Matthew account of the same interaction with the Pharisees. Just following the laws, doing the ritual for the sake, for ritual's sake, was not what God wanted. He wanted his people motivated by a love for him, a love for others. We see this when Jesus answers the question what is the greatest commandment? Matthew 27, or 22, 37. And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love of God, love for people. Pastor and author uh, Thabiti Anabwile says in his commentary, Their question, with regards to the grain, seems to spring from an assumption that keeping the Sabbath regulations was more important than the needs of people. Because they elevate law over people, they become hard toward people and indifferent toward needs. End quote. They elevate law over people, become hard toward people and indifferent toward needs. We get into trouble when our first thought about others is what are they doing? 
Or what are they not doing that I think they should be doing? Rather than how can I love them as a fellow image bearer of God? What's their need? How can I serve them? When we're consumed with others' actions so much that we can't even see the folly in our own actions, we become Pharisees. When we're so focused on the outside and the rules, we become Pharisees. Now, does that mean we turn blind eye to sin? Not at all. But if we're going to have hard conversations about it, it needs to be motivated not just by, you need to do this right, but out of love, out of the gospel, out of a desire to see others grow in Christ, not out of moral superiority and self-righteousness that we see in the Pharisees. Love drives the law. Love God, love others. Everything flows out of that. And Jesus demonstrates that in his response to the Pharisees. We look at the core of the Sabbath. Verses 3 and 5. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus does what he does best here. He doesn't argue. He just goes straight to the Scriptures. And he asks this rhetorical question. Have you not read? He knows they've read. He knows that they choose to ignore it in pursuit of their own moral crusade. He's just saying... Essentially saying, since you seem to know everything, you probably know this, right? How about that time David and his men, they were on the run from Saul. They were exhausted. They were hungry. You, you know the story, right, Pharisees? They enter the house of God and they, they eat the bread of presence, which no one but the priest should eat. You know about that. And that story, they're not breaking the law. And that story, actually, they don't even steal the bread. It's not like they go in and like, oh, here's some bread. Let's go out, take it, and eat it. No, the priest gives it to them, Ahimelech. He sees their need. He meets their need above enforcing the law. In Matthew, Jesus adds this. Have you not read the law and how the Sabbath priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So to those who are trying to enforce the law, Jesus is relaying the scripture right back to them. If the law is supposed to be forced down, um, enforced down to the most minuscule detail, why, why were David and his men and the priests not punished? If we're supposed to enforce this down to silly things like picking grain, well, the, the, the law of the Sabbath about stopping work, how are these priests who are working on the Sabbath not in violation of the Sabbath law? They're working. The Pharisees, I guarantee they don't have an answer. If they double down there and, and say that, that David and the priests are guilty, well, that would not be good. Their hands were tied. They are talking to one who has actual authority on the law of God, God himself. 
And Jesus says to them, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Not you guys. Actually, we get an even more complete view of what Jesus says in Mark 2. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given as a benefit to man to protect us from overworking, to making an idol of labor. It was to serve man as providing them a means to put aside what would distract them from God in order to refocus their attention on him. It was made for man, not man for it. Man was not created to be a slave to the Sabbath, as though it's a burden, but it was made for them. But a burden is what it became. And Jesus points this out to the Pharisees because he, the Son of Man, is Lord of the Sabbath. It was made for man. Jesus is the God-man. The Messiah, the Son of Man, prophesied in the Old Testament. He's the ultimate authority over the Sabbath. This, this title of Son of Man points to that humanity, but also his lordship. You want to know the purpose of the law? Ask the one who gave the law. Jesus is saying, you don't tell me what's lawful or not lawful on the Sabbath. I know better than you will ever know. In fact, if you really knew and remembered, I desire mercy and, and, and sacrifice, then you wouldn't even have tried to condemn the guiltless, those picking grain. The core of the Sabbath and all the law is love and compassion and mercy. If we try to keep the law of God and don't have any of the characteristics of God, we're missing the whole point. Jesus is demonstrating this to them. If their attitude was love God, love people, they would understand the heart behind the Sabbath, the core of the Sabbath, and they wouldn't be trying to punish guys for eating grain. And we would hope that from this interaction they would learn their lesson. But Jesus needs to show them again the meaning of the Sabbath. We see that in the second part of our passage in the synagogue. We look back ahead to verses 6 through 9. As we already read, Jesus is in the synagogue. He's teaching. There's a man with, whose right hand was withered. Pharisees are watching him. And in verse 8, we pick it up. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come, stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? Pharisees are trying to catch Jesus. And there just happens to be a man there with a withered hand, a hand that was not functioning somehow stuck in a position where it was not of use, atrophied. And this man was there. And actually, Luke makes the note that it was his right hand, his most useful hand in society. And they think, oh, that man's there. we got a trap now. Jesus, he might heal on the Sabbath. But most of the time when setting a trap, the person doing the trapping is, thinks they're smarter than the prey in which they're trying to trap. But usually the prey isn't God himself who knows your very thoughts. So Jesus was at a bit of an advantage here. 
And he knew their thoughts, and instead of waiting for them to confront him, as they always do, he goes on the offensive. And in front of everyone in the synagogue, he calls the man up with the withered hand. And Luke makes a note. Again, it's his right hand, the dominant hand. He calls him up. The man stands with Jesus. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And in Mark's account, it says, when Jesus asked that question, but they were silent. They have nothing to say. Because Jesus called in the question, not the letter of the law, but the heart of the law. And according to the law, it was lawful, actually an an obligation to do good, and to show mercy on the Sabbath. If someone was in need of help, and it was life-threatening, you must save them. But the Pharisees didn't see this man's hand as that kind of a situation. He's had this condition. He can live one more day. Surely you don't need to heal it on the Sabbath. That is unnecessary, Jesus. But Jesus asserts otherwise. And Jesus' eyes, the only eyes that matter, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. To knowingly avoid doing the right thing is to do the wrong thing. To knowingly avoid doing the right thing is to do the wrong thing. To not do good is to do harm. Sin of omission is just as damning as sins of commission. Jesus is saying to them, this man stands before you with a useless hand. I have the power to save it. Are you saying I shouldn't because it's the Sabbath? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I will show this man mercy because to do so would violate my very, very nature. To not do so would violate my very nature. So after calling the man up, after asking the question, it says, after looking around at them all, he said, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. Now, I don't even know if they could accuse Jesus of doing work. I mean, what work did he do? He used words. He spoke. He just said, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched out his hand. He didn't touch his hand. He didn't rub his hand. He didn't take the fingers and, like, jerk the hand. He didn't put some kind of a splint apparatus on the hand. He stood there, and he said, stretch it out. Go ahead. And the guy did it. Restoration is at the heart of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to man so that their souls and their strength would be restored after being drained by labor, after being drained by the burdens of life. What was Jesus doing? He's restoring this man's greatest physical burden on what I would say is the most fitting day to do so. But the Pharisees see this act of mercy and compassion, and they see it. They see the man's hand healed, And they say, Behold, truly you are the Lord of the Sabbath. If only. No, instead they see this, and they're filled with fury. And they discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. A man's hand is healed, and they're aggravated. That is the wickedness of sin 
and darken hearts, hearts that are hardened toward God. Their posture is anger and rejection because though they look religious on the outside, their hearts are far, far away from God. And they have one big ticked off huddle together saying, all right, how can we get this guy? What can we do? And we see here the, the beginning of what would eventually result in Jesus down the road, Jesus' arrest and his execution on the cross. Which I think brings us here to our last point, the completion of the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath, as with all the rest of its law, finds its ultimate fulfillment and completion in the person and work, uh, person and work of Jesus. Sabbath was a necessary time of rest that points forward to our ultimate rest only to be found in Christ. Matthew 11, 28 and 29 is up there. Jesus says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You, And you will find rest for your souls. See, no amount of abstaining from work, abstaining from labor, will give us true eternal rest for our souls. Jesus alone offers rest for the soul because he alone has defeated the power of sin, which is our ultimate cause of spiritual unrest. Sin is what puts us in opposition to God. But when Christ went to the cross, he paid that debt that we owe for sin. And on the cross, he says, it is finished. It's done. It's complete. Atonement has been made. Wrath poured out. The price paid. Jesus laid, was laid in the grave, but on the third day, rose. In that resurrection from the grave, Jesus demonstrates that he's not only Lord over the Sabbath, he's Lord over sin and death, and he defeats it. And it's, scriptures tell us Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. What do we do when we come in from a long day of work, maybe shoveling snow, and we're exhausted? We sit down when it's done. We breathe a sigh of relief because the work is finished. Jesus is seated because the work of redemption is finished. He can rest and we can find rest for our souls by trusting in the one who gave his life for us. And I believe it's important to recognize that though in Christ... The ceremonial laws have been fulfilled and we're no longer under an obligation to perform them. God's moral law still exists. So we find our ultimate rest in Christ, but the Ten Commandments are surely not done away with. The principle of a Sabbath rest still remains. And therefore, we should still make time for Sabbath rest. What that looks like for us today would be different than those back then because Jesus has come in, he's changed things. And again, I'd point you to the Ten Commandments sermon series. And when we went through it, through a gospel perspective, what the Ten Commandments look like as a result of the redemptive work of Christ, Pastor Lou preached on this and mentioned 
The Sabbath day, originally set apart, was the seventh day. It was Saturday. It was the end of the week. That day, after work was done, you would set it aside for rest and corporate worship at the end. But we as Christians, because our rest is in the finished work of Christ, in Jesus, we don't gather necessarily on Saturday. It's, it's the first day that we set aside as rest. Because we no longer work to get rest, we work because of our rest. We live out of our rest. Rest drives the work and not the other way around. That's the old way. Our rest in Christ fuels us. It gives our life and work its, its meaning and its purpose. That we live for His glory as a result of what He's done. On mission for Him in the cause of the gospel. We need to set aside time for rest. And practically speaking, you know, even though our ultimate rest is found in Christ, it doesn't mean God wants us to go the opposite way of the Pharisees and just no, ignore setting aside and making that time holy. That would miss the heart of the Sabbath principle. Sabbath rest was made for man because we need it. And we will continue to need it until our eternal rest with Christ in glory in the perfect new heavens and new earth. Are we setting aside the time? Do we have a day that we're setting aside to, to, to physically rest, to rejuvenate ourselves spiritually, to spend time with our families and the family of God? For many, I would say Sunday would probably be a good day to do that. For us on staff, it can't necessarily be the case. We worship on Sunday together, but this can't be a day of rest because it is full of work. We have different days during the week set aside for that. I'm off on Fridays. Ironically, as I'm working on a sermon about Sabbath rest, I've worked on Friday. <laughs> as I'm writing, I'm like, hypocrite. <laughs> Praise God for his grace. We don't send that grace may abound, but sometimes we've got to write sermons on the Sabbath. But in Christ... We find our rest, and we need a physical rest, knowing we don't, we don't take a Sabbath day, we don't take a day of rest because it's somehow earning us something. We rest because we get to. Justin Huffman, in an article in the Gospel Coalition, says, The Sabbath principle is not just another rule to keep. It's an opportunity God is providing to enjoy Him more. End quote. The Sabbath principle of, of resting properly understood is one that, that one that flows out of the gospel leads to joy. It's a joy to rest because we know our souls are in the hands of our Savior. We are made righteous because of what he's done. The Sabbath principle misunderstood, one that flows out of legalism, striving to earn God's favor, leads to a burdened and a weary soul. Am I resting right? Am I doing it right? Oh, did I work? Did I not work? Very different. And Pastor Lou said this in our Ten Commandments series. He said, and I think it offers a good perspective. He said, we have all these celebrations that we set a day apart and celebrate. Graduations, birthdays. How much more for God's people that we set apart a day and celebrate our redemption? 
I'm sure there's some of you sitting here today, you are exhausted. And I don't mean physically. I mean, maybe from your job, maybe from the busyness of life, but you're exhausted because you are, your soul is in unrest. You don't know the peace of Christ because you haven't submitted to the Lord of rest. You haven't put your faith and trust in His finished work. You, like the Pharisees, are trying to work your way to salvation, work your way to having value, trying to do enough so that you can sit and rest based on what you've done. But the gospel is clear. We will never be able to achieve eternal rest based on our own labor, our own works. It's by grace, through faith, in Christ, who has done the work for us. And when we put our faith and our trust in Him, we enter His rest. Because He has paid the penalty for our sin. Surrender your life to Him this morning. This morning we're going to the table in communion. The bread representing Jesus' body that was broken, the cup, His blood shed for us to pay for our sin. These elements, they're a regular reminder of all that Jesus has done. And as we eat of it this morning, maybe be reminded that we don't need to strive harder, we don't need to do more, but that we can find rest in Jesus. Remember all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf, that the work is done, it is finished. So the band's going to come up, and we're going to spend some time in quiet reflection. Let's take time to, to confess sin, to repent, and, and, and know that in Christ we are forgiven if we put our faith and trust in Him. And I pray that we would know and understand our ultimate rest in Christ this morning. Once you have taken that time, come to the table, grab a piece of bread and a cup of juice, take it back to your seat, hold on to it, we will take together as a church family after this next song. But is Jesus your rest today? Is your confidence in him? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Because we so easily can fall into this trap that the Pharisees were. Where we look around us and we're just trying to see what are others doing that we can catch. And we fail to look in the mirror to see our own sinful ways, to see our own pride. And this morning I hope that we would see Jesus, that we would hear what Jesus is saying, that we would know his love that was poured out for us on the cross, and that that love would motivate all that we say and all that we do, that we would have a love for you and a love for your people who you created, and that everything would flow from that. From our redemption and our salvation. Help us to confess and repent that which needs to be repented of. That keeps us far from you so that we, we would know that we're forgiven. And that we wouldn't feel distant, but that we would feel you near. And that would give us a hope and a peace 
a joy and great rest for our souls. We pray that you would be doing a work in us and through us, that we might be better lights in the world for your glory because of all that you are doing. We ask your spirit to work at us as we spend this time reflecting, as we spend this time meditating on uh, the words of this song rooted in your truth and that we would surrender to the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.